Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. Um, this is Vincent Horn, and I'm back um, for another conversation as part of this ongoing series or season on ethics. And today I'm really excited and also a little bit nervous to be speaking with uh, Angel uh, Kyoto Williams. She's a sensei in the Zen tradition. You also go by uh, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. What's the Reverend part in your background? Oh, that's uh, actually quite common. Uh, not all senseis are priests necessarily, but I am. Uh, and so it follows in some, we have, you know, lots of choice. Decentralization is good. And so some people uh, use reverend as part of their priest. It's actually common, especially in Japan. Oh, okay. For Soto Zen priests to use reverend. Okay, cool. Well, it's um, awesome to have you on the show. And um, we had a lovely conversation a couple months ago, and uh, it got real geeky. So I think uh, <laughs> um, you're, you're definitely a Buddhist geek. I don't know if you claim to be a Buddhist, but you're, you certainly are a geek. <laughs> that for sure. <laughs> I'm an, an, a, a questionable Buddhist and a total geek. <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, after my own heart, I, I feel the same way. Um, so uh, just to mention a little bit more about your background and, and kind of, I guess, set the stage for the conversation, um, uh, in addition to teaching in the, uh, and practicing in the Zen tradition, um, being a spiritual teacher, um, you've also started uh, an organization called the Center for Transformative Change, and you're an author. Um, you've written, I guess, this current book is your second book that you've written. Is that correct? It, it, it is. Awesome. So the first one, the first one you wrote uh, by by yourself, right? Being black, Zen, and the art of living with fearlessness and grace. Um, and then this this one that's coming out um, soon, actually, probably will be out by the time this conversation airs, is called uh, Radical Dharma: uh, Talking Race, Love, and Liberation. And and you co-authored this with a couple of folks. Um, could you could you say a little bit about how about how the book, how this came to be, and and sort of uh, um, how you got connected with the other uh, authors. I think that'd be an interesting may maybe way to, to kind of kick things off. Sure. So December 2014, the now second case in which, uh, which was the case of Eric Garner in, from Staten Island, New York, in which a police officer was not being indicted for the death of a black man. Uh, that decision came down and uh, Shambhala Sun, which is now known as Lions Roar, asked myself and Lama Rod Owens to have a conversation together. And, uh, and Lama Rod in particular, because he is a black man, he's a queer black man that is a, a Lama in the Kagyu Tibetan tradition. And so we had this conversation. And as I am fond of saying that as 
the conversation then went as close to one could call viral in a Buddhist in the Buddhist com- online community. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in other words, uh, tens of thousands of people probably saw that. Um, yes, tens of thousands. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Which is you know, which is viral for for the Buddhist world because it's a small world. It was it was a, it was a few it was a few thousand. Nice. It, you know, there was a there's a good number of views, but it it got around further further than what it kind of appears to be in some ways, and that's when we realized, you know, we don't we don't go and count views, but we realized um, through the feedback that we got that people were yeah. moved. Uh, so that uh, prompted us to continue what I think has already been, you know, f- for sure a conversation about what are the conversations that we need to be having uh, and to lean further into what had already been the beginnings of, for me, a, a questioning of like, what is the form and what is, what, is, what is the action that we need to take in Buddhist communities that remain uh, overwhelmingly white, but also in many ways, a microcosm of larger uh, social uh, illnesses, I, I would say, uh, show up in, in our Dharma communities and Sanghas, you know, nearly 50 some odd years into the, the seeding of Dharma in the West. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we got started. Completely breakneck pace, because, you know, this, as, as we all know now that the... Um, the urgency around, with, in terms of um, addressing racial justice, has just increased. I think, in in many ways, some some of us, maybe all of us, thought this would be a blip on the screen. It would come and go, and uh, you know, in the Twitter sphere and a couple of news cycles, uh, and it kept going and going. And so the the intensity and urgency has only increased since then. So we had four conversations. Yes, Mean Saidullah, the third uh, author. Uh, is, a, is a longtime student of mine and coordinated, helped us coordinate conversations, getting to cities, a couple of cities and f- four, uh, to have conversations that we then naively thought we would just easily transcribe into a book. <laughs> <laughs> I, I noticed some of the book had conversations, but then some of it was kind of, it seemed to be like, kind of more written and prepared like a mm-hmm. kind of traditional book. Yeah. So yeah. it's nice. I actually found it to be a really nice uh, combination. Yeah. The book was inspired. The, uh, the idea of conversations between us, Lama Mat Rod and myself was inspired by the book called um, Breaking Bread, uh, Insurgent Black Intellectual Life by Cornell West and Bell Hooks and, we were inspired by that book because at the time that the book came out, uh, Lama Rod was probably too young, but for me it was like, oh, there are black intellectuals. That was almost an oxymoron in my um, internalized, oppressed mind uh, in the social landscape. And so it was sort of like, oh, this, like two black Buddhist teachers? And so it was like that, right? It was a mirror of this. Uh, sort of like yes, there are that, but we don't really know of them. And 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 what does it do when you have uh, black people in a position to address topics of conversations that are usually the realm of uh, the, that those conversations and who we hear from um, have historically been white and in, 
in, in terms of intellectuals, and in our case, in the Buddhist community, you know, whites and Asians. And so uh, we, we thought about it as creating a talking book, which is why it's called Talking Race. The subtitle is Talking Race, Love, and Liberation. Mm. Yeah. Nice. I, I was um, really excited as I read through the book to see the emphasis on conversation um, in part because, um, you know, that's, that's been the shift recently and the format for this show I was telling you mm-hmm. last time we spoke. And there's something about conversation where um, it's like we're meeting together in a fundamental way as, as equals or as peers. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean that, like, I, we don't have things to learn from each other um, or that there's not expertise happening. Um, on, on, on either side, um, and yet it's held by this sort of sense of be, being being in this together. And that's one thing I very much get from from you, and also from from this book. I mean, the the, the opening quote, which which you wrote, which I'd love to share um, if you're up for it, is uh, about radical dharma. And you you write that it's the Radical Dharma is insurgence rooted in love and all that love of self and other implies. It takes self-liberation to its necessary end by moving beyond personal transformation to transcend dominant social norms and delivers us into collective freedom. And yeah, I just love that so much because it's, it's, it's like this shift you're talking about from the personal to the collective, and then this like larger conversation about race and whiteness and implicit bias and the sort of systems and structures of oppression. Um, I'm not sure that's your language, but that's just kind of how I read it. Um, it. It just all feels like it kind of ties back into the to the spiritual process and transcends the whole notion of this being all about you know my own um, awakening some way what do you think yeah i think that's good good language and um it is inclusive i think of the personal and one of the other i want to say lenses or doorways into the book is a conversation with so the on, on the one hand there's a conversation with the dharma community at large Inside of that, there's definitely a conversation with the white Dharma community, but the way that conversation happens is by inviting the white Dharma community to listen in on the conversation between uh, people of color and black people speaking to teachers of color. Uh, And and when I say it's an invitation to be in on that conversation, that's how the conversations happened in each of the cities, the cities being Atlanta, uh, Boston, Brooklyn, and uh, here in Berkeley. So all of the conversations were mixed, and two of them happened in, particularly in, uh, you know, Dharma centers. Uh, our center here in Berkeley is kind of combination community center and and Dharma center and and then also at Harvard Divinity School where Lama Rod is a student at and a grad student at and so the conversations were all mixed race they were all open to the public uh, they's not they weren't planted we just said hey we're going to have this conversation 
with the topic and, and the sub, same t- subtitle and people came. Uh, what was unique about the way the conversations unfolded, which we ultimately preserved in the book, was that because, and I, well, I would, I would say, I would say that because there were not just, not just one, but two black teachers in front of the room, one, there, there was a sort of shift in the energy where, uh, from my experience, what you heard was black people speaking to black teachers and to each other in the way that black people speak when there there is only black people in the room and 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 people of color speaking um, amongst themselves even though white folks were present in the room and that's an important shift in the way that we have conversations in public because if we aren't able to show up as ourselves right if something gets cut off in order for us to figure out how to belong which i think is largely what is the chafe for people of color in terms of um, entering to communities that are largely white is they're often asked to leave something of themselves behind and to to fit in Mm -hmm. and by preserving that capturing that and preserving that in the book what we're what we're saying is and we said this quite specifically actually during the course of the editing of the book there was a moment where the the editor uh, made some editorial suggestions that were uh, ignored, <laughs> and then it came back around again. You know, well, these these edits are you know so that we can reach the, the intersectional audience is the way that it was put that the book intends to reach. And and I responded, oh, you, a- actually, that's code word for whiteness. That's what you mean when when you say intersectional audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what you mean is what you're trying to say is. Uh, that the book should be more accessible to white people. The language, the vernacular should be more accessible to white people. And I said, and this is not a book for white people. It's a book that centers on blackness and invites wholeheartedly white folks to be in this conversation with, with people of color as they are. And that that itself is an act of love in the same way that the conversations unfolded, which is to say, let us be in this conversation as we are. And, you know, not certainly not for the first time, but in a, in a way that is sort of is captured. Um, let's have this conversation as we are with you seeing us and hearing us, our, our pain and our frustration and the loss that we feel and the, um, in, in having to show up into places in which we, we still feel not welcome. And by doing that and inviting us all to be in that conversation in this naked and un- um, doctored way that is common to the bicultural nature of being people of color in a white dominant society, we invite white folks to show up as they are rather than solely right in the, within the construct of whiteness. And that's an exploration to, to be had because I think most white people haven't had to think about like, who am I outside of Whiteness. So there's a sort of simultaneous thing that happens with like people simultaneously do not think about whiteness, right? And it's almost even a little chafe to hear that word keep being repeated, right? Like whiteness, whiteness. Uh, but we don't think about that um, as something that we're inhabiting socially 
as an as an ego, what I call a social ego structure. Mm. So for the Buddhist community, which is part of the reason I really love to have this conversation within within our communities, is because we actually have language and approach and an understanding of the notion of a construct that we inhabit, that we forget about the fact of the construct and mistake it for who we are. Right. And I would say that whiteness has is a social form of ego structure that through its development and its construction legally, right, um, culturally, mm-hmm. uh, socially, over the course of hundreds of years in this country, we it's become invisible in, in a way, in, and, and it has enabled people from particular European heritages to disappear themselves into something without realizing they've disappeared themselves into something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And which was intentional, right? That was the idea. That's what. That's why it was constructed, right? So a, a body of people, owning class people, could maintain power, and they invited people that used to be from places, right? They used to be Irishmen, and they were Englishmen, and they were um, they were Jews, and they were of a place. The Italians, they were Germans, they were of a place. And they were invited selectively, bit by bit, into into whiteness, into the construct, the legal frame of whiteness, uh, to to maintain power. Mm. And they were given privileges for that. And nice. and now, yeah, and now we have forgotten that that's what has happened, right? And and. I think we are uh, experiencing the ramification of inhabiting a construct, forgetting that you're in that construct. Uh, and then there's all this pain and wounding in the same way that we have with our ego. Hmm. It, it seems like um, the construct of whiteness you're talking about, I mean, it certainly predates America in terms of, uh, I mean, the British were probably, uh, <laughs> you know, they were mastering that construct <laughs> long ago, I can imagine. Yeah. They were mastering the construct, but the development of and the sort of institutionalization of the construct is actually ours. So could you say more about that? Because that's 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 an interesting thing. And you talk a bit about in the book too about um, capitalism. As you know, you said you have the sort of pet theory that capitalism is kind of required in a sense uh, for this to hold up. Um, so, well, capitalism requires race in order to hold up in this country. Mm, okay. Because they were built together. So you, you essentially had owning class peoples that uh, were importing, um, that's a nice way of saying it, the, <laughs> the, the more accurate way of saying it is like stealing mm. peoples from their land. Uh, and they were bringing them here, particularly in the Virginia colony, at a rate at which they were, there were more slaves than there were white folks. Mm. And But they also had uh, indentured servants, which were white peoples. The main difference being that the indentured servants served for seven years and then they were free and they were given freedom dues. And they were given a musket and bushel of corn and some land and they were given things right so they paid their passage so to speak it was a long 
paying, but they paid their passage. But what happened is, uh, this is quite early on, and we hadn't formed the United States uh, yet. In sixteen, uh, sort of mid six mid sixteen hundreds, uh, there was an uprising called Bacon's Rebellion, and uh, the last people standing were were twenty Irish men and eighty uh, slaves. And the owning class people got said, oh, this is a problem because they're organizing around class, right? Mm-hmm. Which the British knew quite well. And we can't have that. We can't have so many of these African slaves, as many as we have in them organizing with the, with the servants around, around class because there's a lot of people, you know, when you – there tends to be very few of the owning class, right? So hence the 1% idea. So they started to institute legal, but this was on the books, legal, there's a legal assertion of being white that was put on the books. And if you're a white person in good standing, then you had certain privileges that were given to you, you know, ability to inherit land, and so, and and simultaneously, that meant that you there were privileges that were taken away from by establishing that privileges taken away from, for instance, blacks. Right. So there were free blacks, but they couldn't inherit land, for instance. Right. And 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 whites in good standing were naturalized into the United States. Right. And so they became citizens, and they had certain entitlements and privileges that you know have continue that we take for granted now as part of what it means to be an American. Uh, but those were all founded on, all of those things that we think of were founded on the idea of like you were an upstanding white person. And that meant that you had to, and this is, goes back to like what you have to let go of in order to belong. What that meant is that you were invested in the continued slavery of blacks it was structured into like legally, right? So that was, it was made there. So, you know, hundreds of years of training ensued from that, uh, that uh, poor, poor whites were kept separate from poor blacks and, uh, you know, Native Americans were essentially almost entirely disappeared for some time. Uh, But it was, it was set up that way. That structure was set up. And and we so we institutionalized that in a way that um, we sort of took what the British did and we like went one one two three four better, uh, uh, and it let it let us in terms of capitalism what it did is it let us very quickly assign value to people so race let us assign value to people and then scientific racialization began uh, where there were like basically four peoples. And we assigned value to who people were based on these classifications of race that we know scientifically we know is almost essentially entirely false. So we're we're also in sort of Buddhist terms, right? In this notion, with these constructs, we're in this we're 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 very much in these concepts of like ego constructs, right? Personal level, social level. And we're inside of absolute and relative because relatively speaking, race does, race absolutely exists. And absolutely speaking, it actually really doesn't, right? Right down to the, 
you know, to genes, right? Like we're, I think they said we're like, we're closer to dogs or something like that than we are, um, you know, as, as, as human beings in terms of, uh, you know, yeah, how, how, how same we are. We're so same. It's like very, very little of our genes are actually very different, very different. And so I, I think this is a great conversation uh, part of why we did Radical Dharma, because I think this is a great conversation for the Buddhist community to be leaders in, ultimately, because we have at the foundation of our teachings a real way that is practiced and is part of the the lineage of that we've received to be able to investigate these constructs and these purported realities for what they are. Okay, that's that's uh, it's a good um, it's a good overview of the history, and um, it's funny too. I'm thinking back to elementary school, and I, it's like I remember some of this stuff, but some of that is not part of the. It's not part of the normal. You know, it's not part of what's emphasized or taught in history, which is also kind of part of, I guess, part of what you're describing. It's part of that sort of invisible structure where you don't really you know think about those things because it's not it's not discussed um i wanted to bring up something you know really related to what you just said about the you know the having the tools and the kind of lineages of being able to investigate constructs and i mean from what i've seen with this whole topic and my own sort of personal investigation of it um I haven't actually found my meditative awareness to be, uh, at least initially, all that helpful <laughs> in exploring <laughs> um, these things. And 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 really, like, yeah, you know, I, I think it was a couple months ago. I was, you know, I was looking into your work and really, really just d- diving deeper down into this, into this, um, you know, in this rabbit hole, which is, you know, uh, I'd say, you know, you, you said that the. the you know, even hearing the term whiteness, 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 that, that can shape, chafe the ego. It's like this whole thing chafes in a certain right. way. Um, and, you know, if each layer, you know, for, for myself, each layer that I go into and each kind of like, you know, new ignorance that I uncover, like, oh, fuck. Um, and it was really doing the, I, I, I did this sort of uh, the race test, Harvard's race test, you know, the looking at implicit bias. Right. When, Sitting, you know, sitting up and doing this on my cell phone, and I thought, okay, you know, I've got this training, right? Like in meditative awareness, and they're going to do this thing where they put these different things in front of me, and surely, like, I will have some sort of like uh, ability, uh, more of an ability to recognize my, you know, micro reactions, and like at least to see them, you know, if not to like actually. Uh, change how I'm reacting. And I, I, you know, I found doing that test that I, uh, that the bias was uh, very clear. There was a racial bias implicit in my um, way of looking at things. And, um, and it also could, I, the cool thing about the meditative practice was that I, I actually saw it arising. <laughs> I, like I saw how easy it was on the first round where it's like, you know, associating things with white people and white faces where it was like good and, you know, certain words. And it was, it was amazing how easy and instant that was and how difficult and challenging it was when it got flipped. Mm. Um, and how like, even though I wanted to be able to, 
you know, somehow not have a bias and I wanted to be able to like, you know, overcome that conditioning. It just, it, it wasn't the case. It was there deep, deep in, deep inside um, somehow. And that, that was a pretty stark realization and my meditative awareness, you know, didn't do anything to, to change that. <laughs> Your Dharma superpowers, right? <laughs> yeah. In fact, it only just helped, it helped make it more clear and obvious uh, how, 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 how real it was. Yeah. And I think that that, in many ways, that that's the good news, right? That that right. we we do have a tool by which we can become aware, and that tool can be used, right? It right. can be used to, and that's that's also been proven. Um, you know, the Mind and Life Institute is doing a lot of work around that, to re- and recognizes that, in fact, meditative awareness can help with bias, but it has to be directed, right? And so you can be aware, and, um, you know, those of us that that practice, have a practice, know that we can be aware of the emergence of of an impulse. And it doesn't necessarily mean we can catch the impulsive behavior, and and stop it before it actually happens. And so we get really good at kind of like the play-by-play, right? It's yeah. like, uh, you know, Steph Curry is like coming in and you know he's about to go for the three. And it's not, you can, as you can <laughs> give the trouble. play-by-play, but there is nothing you can do about it. <laughs> and and medit- our meditative awareness can be like that, right? It does not give us the skill set to interrupt the behavior necessarily um part of that is because we have to we have to have a, a an investment and motivation to interrupt the behavior and whiteness is um has a much greater force the construct in social construct has a much greater force and is much more consistently reinforced to actually have a motivation to reinforce it not not the other way around to not rather not to intercept it because as it was designed, there's benefits. Yeah, no, I've, I've, uh, I've become a lot more aware of those benefits, especially with respect to you know, you're mentioning Eric Gardner and, um, you know, and and, and the number of uh, horrific situations where police officers have clearly had by a bias. I mean, it's just not even a question. You watch those videos, and there's there's no question about it. You know. But um, I, I've been walking around lately and thinking, like, God, it's like I can't. It's like I could do something just awful in the street. And like, what could, what would I have to do in order to get that same response? Right. You know, that's a, that's it, a wonderful question. That's a, that, I mean, that that's. A, I don't usually like this notion of like meditating on something, but that's an awesome meditation. Right. Yeah, it, and it has, it has been, and it, it's, it's like I don't really know what I'd have to do, and I'm, I'm not going to like test empirically test that question, right. but um, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's 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 sort of weird just to think like oh, there are other people who can do nothing, you know, do very little or nothing, and the response that they receive is overwhelmingly um, negative, and mm-hmm. and where I could like you know I could be out drinking or you know I could be doing drugs in public and. You know, even being a smart ass or like yelling, and I'm like, I'm not going to get in trouble, right. and I, and I know that at some level, I know that because I've done it. Right. Um, 
Right. So yeah, that's that's a pretty, you're certainly it's not going to you're certainly not going to get killed. No, right. no, I, I wouldn't be concerned about about being killed. No, no question. Like right. maybe getting a ticket or something. Right. You're gonna get. Yeah. You might get a hard time, but yeah. And I think that that is a contemplation of you know if we can do do that deeply, it uh, begins to surface. Um, something of a recognition of the way in which we may be colluding in that the a system that allows that i think that i think the danger to what we're seeing uh unfold in the country in particular is that is the focus and emphasis on the police force which certainly has you know problems mm. um i think one of the i just want to say that first of all one of the things is should be clear is that it's not that something has begun to start happening. It's just that social media, the advent of cameras on everyone's, you know, in everybody's, the palm of everyone's hand has just made something that's always been going on mm-hmm. uh, more um, available to us and social media gets it around. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the 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 awareness right so we now have this meditative awareness of the 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 violence and aggression towards particularly black people in in this country um it it gives us the opportunity to say in sanghas right like how what is my an hour participation in that and and our expression of that violence and aggression within our communities and in in the life that I lead. Of course, it doesn't look like an Eric Garner type situation, but part of what makes it an Eric Garner situation tenable, right, is the acceptance of it by society that we could not indict, right? Uh, And we could have arguments about how that's even remotely appropriate to not indict. Um, And that the the police forces what they're doing is they're maintaining a social order that's why it's not limited to you know some like racist corner that we can just write it off and go oh well they're just not advanced and you know right. as we are you because know, you, have seeing, the, you have the judicial uh, system that's also that's of. exactly right so we have the judicial system playing and we have you know we're on on the the magic progressive coasts right it's new york and san francisco and we're seeing this all over the place it's not limited to you know podunk if, i hope that's not a real place but podunk um america <laughs> <That's where I'm laughs> exactly um and so they maintain that social order because that social order is um, in many ways required by our our society. When when we say that in our society, it's, it's required by our dominant culture. So the police are not acting like all by themselves. They're, they're acting with an, an instruction, not by some few evil police chiefs poking sure. around the country, but rather a social order. And in our Dharma communities, we have a permutation, right? It's a shade of that social order of basically saying, if you don't, as people of color, as black people, uh, in some cases, right, depending on the community, as queer people, in some places as women, right, as some places as able, as as 
differently abled people, right? Whatever the ways in which someone is marginalized or not part of the dominant dominant culture, if you don't show up the way that we expect within our social norms, right? We're we're going to close ranks around um, our culture and say and, and communicate to you in some way that you don't belong. And the result of that is that people in in non-dominant uh, positions receive an invitation by our largely white, you know, uh, mahasanga. We we receive invitations because we in in our brains, right? It's like the brain, your brain that went to go and take an implicit bias test. You know, quote unquote, what's right and wrong. But the implicit bias that's deeply embedded that showed up in the test shows up in our sanghas as people not feeling welcome. Mm. So there's an invitation made, but it's not welcome. There's not a welcoming. So you you know the difference. You know better. So we're not talking about, you know, people in hoods and sheets um, are, are, you know, populating our songs, <laughs> uh, no, keep, totally, keeping totally the colored folks out. Right. We're talking no, about, sure. we're talking about the guy that in, with cu- open curiosity goes and says, yeah, I'm going to check this out and take this test. And, and it's a little indication that you have ways of showing up that the result is is that people of color don't feel welcome. The result is, you know, as you t- take the other test and see that women don't feel welcome in some places, that queer people don't feel welcome in, in places. So this is not a, um, you know, a sort of finger wagging as in, you know, someone's evil or mean or horrible. Like this is a um, an expression for me from Radical Dharma and, and, and Lama Rod as well of love for our collective community to say um, there is a great loss that you all that are in this position of privilege experience of, as a result of being so blind to it. Sure. Sure. And we want to invite you not only into a conversation, and this is really particular to Dharma, but in a practice of conversation, in a practice of radical, that is to say, complete, right, or whole dharma, not Buddha's teachings, the whole truth, right, not just the, not just the historic Buddhist teachings, but to be in the whole truth. So to be in the history and to recognize that history, which is why I shared that, right, mm-hmm. to, um, to be curious about, like, where am I not turning the lens of this uh, powerful teaching on to in my life? How is it that I can have this meditative awareness, right, and not have developed the capacity to to interrupt bias, even as I feel it in my system? You know, going going back, you know, we we're talking about. Um capitalism a little and that's that's come up a number of times i'm sure you could imagine in a a series on ethics um you know one one response that's been coming up for me to, to to that question is you know that in a certain way i i sort of recognize intuitively that there are so many things uh so many biases so many delusions 
that I operate under, um, many of them inherited. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, probably all of them inherited. Right. Um, I don't know that I've been smart enough to make up any new ones. <laughs> but, um, you know, that in a certain way, it's like, okay, every day I get up, you know, okay, time to, time to take care of the baby's diaper, you know, time to go to work, time to work on this, time to focus on this, time to check Facebook. You know, there's, there's a certain way in which, you know, also our economic activity and our society and our culture, it's like, it's so, you know, that I've heard the term wage slavery, which I think is a terrible term in this context, but, right. but what it, what it points to though, in a certain, in another way that, that feels quite real is, you know, we're so freaking busy just, I mean, trying to earn a living 50% of us don't, you know, if, if an emergency happened, we wouldn't have someone to, to call to get like a few hundred bucks. You know, and this is, I'm sure this is way more true mm -hmm. of the communities that you're talking about than it is of the white communities, but it's, it's true, it's true for my wife and I. Right. And there's a way in which that, it seems like that, the whole way we've organized our economic activity and organized our, um, you know, how, what we do and how we do it, it, it doesn't give room and space really to contemplate these things and to really give the attention and the care that seems to be required, like over long periods of time mm -hmm. um, to really like start to uproot and then like take certain kinds of actions uh, on them. Mm -hmm. And I've just kind of noticed how limited I feel in terms of, you know, even being able to do that. Yeah. What are your thoughts on, on Yeah. Well, first I, I, I love to say it's not your fault, um, but it's your responsibility. So that's the first thing, right? Um, the, this structure of uh, both both racist, racism and white supremacy, and racism is just a symptom um, or an outcome of, of white supremacy. And, uh, but it's a r irresponsibility because you can see it. And so, yes, right, uh, capitalism, it's not that you, so you didn't structure it that way. It's like, I, I love when we, we sort of like when we change the we, that's code switching. <laughs> and so in that we, 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 you and I, right, people of our class did not structure this. This was structured by a, a, a ruling class and an owning class way before our time on this earth and 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 that's true of the racialization of the society as well so we we it was structured and that's important to say because then you realize like why it's operating in the way that it's operating so many of us are caught in it that's by design as is race right by design those two things were intertwined with one another and caught up so that two things are happening is that we'd we're so busy, and you, you framed it and spoke about it perfectly as, as a life experience. We're so busy navigating our, um, our survival, right? And survival is, in a capitalist society, is, you know, stretchy, let's just say, right? It's a stretchy mm -hmm. idea. Sure. Um, we're, we're so busy navigating our survival, we, we don't have time to care for one another, Mm. Yeah. We don't have t we don't have time for to care for one another, everyone. So we get more and more limited in terms of who we care for, and we and and it becomes a very narrow pool of who it is we can care for. 
Now that <laughs> that is a that is huge ramifications. We don't really think about it like that. Yeah. On the right, and uh, do you want to say something about that? Well, just just I was thinking of a of a like a, a real world practical example of that recently, where my my grandmother went and had surgery, and you know she uh, afterwards was needing a lot of care and a lot of help, and you know she has a big family and a lot of people nearby, and yet you know there's people had you know in the family had very limited time to spend with her, and she, you know at a certain point she was feeling like uh, a bit neglected or a bit uncared for. And I noticed my initial response was like, "Well, hey, Grammy, why don't why don't you guys you know hire someone to help help?" Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, to me that seems. I mean, to her that seems just very strange. You know, it's a strange concept, and to me it seemed like a really natural concept. And we ended up, you know, <laughs> there was some conflict there. And later I was like, "Yeah, isn't it weird that like hmm. we don't? I don't have the time." that I need to go and care for my grandmother more for that, that my uncles and aunts don't like, and that, that is such a strange concept. And it seems like it is, you know, to her, that's, that's not the context she grew up in. It wasn't quite the way it was structured even, you know, 50 years ago, 80 that's years right. ago. So right. yeah, no, just, just to say that. The truth totally is, see that. so if we get into like, right, some, some Dharma here, right? The truth is, of course you have the time. You have the same amount of time I do. So we don't get different portions of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the ordering of your priorities, though, have been structured in such a way that that's the perception of time. It's not yes, about whether of there is time. Of course. Right? Well, it's it's of course, but you know, actually, Vincent, that's not real. We don't really go into that, right? And we we could have a productivity conversation about this, um, and just really go off into another kind of geek space. But but that's actually really what's happening is capitalism has con- and continues to reorder our priorities. You you listed things and one of them was check Facebook, <laughs> right? Yes, very important. It was very yeah. You you listed them as very important. But when we begin to probe, um, here's what I want to say: when something gets in front of us that has. Be, that we begin to, that we have, that we assign a sense of value to in terms of um, our internal desire structure, right? We we are, we reorganize those priorities, and we do it almost effortlessly. Um, and so, the question for us is: is like, what is our motivation, right? And what is it that we have prioritized in our lives? And that requires something of us to consciously choose. And for me, that's actually a a doorway into liberation is when we begin to consciously choose how it is we structure our relationship to a reality that we know is fleeting and impermanent. So it's all completely made up in some ways, right? It's all impermanent. No matter what it is you do, eventually you're going to die. The question is, what do you do with what you have? Right? Are you in a predetermined, right, unfolding that is delivered to you, as you said, like inherited, borrowed, that you just fit in the momentum of and you just go 
with that momentum and you feel like you couldn't have convinced yourself that you're making choices within it, but really you're just caught in it. Or one of my, the fate, one of my, the, the titles of one of my favorite books in, uh, in introductions to Buddhism is, or do you go against a stream? Do you swim against a stream of momentum that compels us to begin to, the way I say it, is trade in our humanity for privilege. Trade in our caring of one another for moving up the social ladder, for feeling a sense of security in one of the most wealthy countries in the world in terms of distributed wealth. So the, the investigation into how is, where, where is our thinking coming from, right? And where, where do we get that from is so essential because when I really stop, if I think if I stopped you and I said, okay, let's have a conversation. And I said, so uh, is it more important to, you know, become this quote unquote, this title, like fill in the blank, or, or is it more important to express your, your love and care for humanity? Most Buddhists would say, of course, humanity, compassionate, bodhisattvas, dharma. Um, but in our reality, uh, or I would say in the relative space of, of capitalism and racialization, those priorities get altered. Mm-hmm. And what, what my suggestion is, is that in, in terms of radical dharma, is that I want to bring it to question so that we're in a conversation with each other and with ourselves about what am I really caring about and where did I get that from? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that who I choose to be or is my liberation my perception of liberation and and choosing a practice that's about liberation, is it tucked inside? Is it trapped inside of uh, uh, a framework that, that limits me to neglect my grandmother when she's got a surgery, to neglect that queer person that comes into the room and, uh, is, you know, obviously different to neglect that Latino woman that comes into a Dharma community and doesn't abide by the cultural norms there. Do I, how do I respond to that? How do I relate to that? Do I, do I include that? Do I fold that into the, my priorities or is it more important for me to set up the Zendo? Mm-hmm. Instead of welcoming that person, mm-hmm. is it more important for me to, um, you know, we had a little incident where one of our Sangha members here's uh, four-year-old was in the, um, in, in, you know, he was there during a session and a visitor from outside uh, was there. We, you know, I, I think she maybe had been here once before. And so the young man was... Um, take, they had taken to singing <laughs> something during the chant. Mm-hmm. And she sought to, to shush him. Mm. Right? Because that's proper dharma. We're doing, we're chanting. <laughs> you know, it's time to, time to chant. Yeah. We are saving all beings here. <laughs> uh, but there, there is a being, right? Not an abstraction. There is a, a, a real 
tangible, touchable, lovable human being. And, and she was in that moment more invested the, in the abstraction. And that's what we get into. Right? We yeah. get into the abstractions of, of what's important in our, in our ideas. And we're caught in really in the ideas of what's important. And uh, I think most of us could use a good thick thwack from a Zen stick um, <laughs> to wake us up and say, is that what you, is that what you're really choosing? Is that liberation? Is that what this practice is about for you? Is that why you chose to come into this practice so that you could replicate these structures of suffering so that you could maintain these institutions of oppression? So, I, first of all, yeah, think that, I think that's uh, a be- beautifully, you know, beautifully put, and um, you know, um, and and not just ab- in an abstract way. It's like, oh yeah, with my grandmother, like yeah, I, I I do wish I had chosen to spend more time with her, and I do think um, it's it's easier sometimes to assume that someone else's delusion is the problem mm-hmm. instead of kind of recognizing and, and doing the hard work of, of seeing, oh yeah, like this is what I'm prioritizing. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, um, and this is such a deep topic, <laughs> so, so many other things, but at this, at this, you know, it's interesting as you're talking, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about, you know, the, the classic uh, kind of right and left conversation about responsibility and how, you know, there's like on the right side, it's like the individual is responsible, you know, uh, and there is no sort of, and then the left side's like, oh, no, it's these structures and these systems that are responsible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're in a way talking about both and kind that's of moving, right. tog- toggling between them. And that's where this exploration for me, it, it is tricky and it is challenging because sometimes even just to make a simple choice, like, oh, I'm going to prioritize. It's not always so simple. Like, it really does set in motion, like, an existential, mm-hmm. uh, you know, inquiry that can really, like, wreak havoc on life. That's right. Yeah, that's <laughs> and, right. I mean, in a spiritual practitioner's right, I mean, I know, I mean, that's that's kind of like, I mean, if someone doesn't know that that's the purpose of practice, like, it's they're really in for a rude awakening when they, you know, they start having some insights, right? Well, I think that's the problem was that we're not, we're, we're, we haven't allowed ourselves to be in for, like to be up for that rude awakening. And so we have, um, we have suppressed that. Mm-hmm. So we have suppressed it. We, and, and as a result, this is what I want to say, we've suppressed the Dharma mm-hmm. in its full potential. Yes. We, so the, the full potential of the Dharma is, has been suppressed in deference to our capitalism, mm-hmm. in deference to our racialized society, in deference to all of the things. And, and that's why our meditative awareness does not interrupt the bias. Okay, great. And so, so that makes total sense to me what you're saying. And I'm, I'm like 100%, you know, with you on that. And, you know, it, it's like there's a fierce compassion in what you're saying. You know, like we ha- like you have to up, like be willing to interrupt this bias and um and bring the dharma fully to bear you know on all of this that's right 
And there's also, I guess, like the question of like, why is it that we're suppressing this so often? You know, what is it behind that? You know, for, for me, you know, as I look at it, it's like there's, a, there's fear. You know, there's fear like, mm-hmm. well, how am I going to be, you know, how, how are we going to be taken care of? You know, what, how will we get our needs met? You know, like what, you know, what does it look like to suddenly, you know, go against the grain so much that you, you know, you, you find yourself in territory where it's like, oh shit. <laughs> like there, there, there is a kind of, for me at least, it feels like there's a negotiation, like where there's a real, you know, there's being radical and there's being radically stupid, mm-hmm. you know, where you can go too far, too fast, you know, based on ideals, you know, it's like you go from one set of ideals to flipping, you know, into another set of ideals. And there's, what, where's the pragmatic, the practical, the kind of negotiating, you know, one real world situation at a time? I mean, I guess that is Dharma. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, at least in practice, it's, um, you yeah, those, those extremes feel very, uh, they, they, they flip back and forth very quickly. Yeah. Well, and I think that, uh, so if you kind of, if we take this conversation around race and, and yeah, marginalization and and look at that, so for me, I mean, I I have had to do the same thing. Um, uh, you know, I have to navigate the. I'm inside of capitalism just as well. Um, but the necessity for me is more potent to apply my lens to racialization. The necessity for me is more potent to try apply my lens around um, queerness because they're my they're the they're realities for me that exist um, whether directly or sometimes indirectly because they're they're so who I associate with, right? It's and that's where the love part comes in. The, the motivation um, for my pursuing this liberation beyond the personal is that I love people that are caught up, right? That are that are in this in this system and and um, overwhelmed by the system, systems of forces of of oppression, um, and so. I begin to, because of my relationship with them and my willingness to be in relationship with with them, and and my relationship to, and 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 the way that that mirrors back the relationship that I have to myself. And I want to say that's probably that's the most important thing. When I found myself um, making in these sort of existential choices around like me or them, <laughs> me or them, right? It's that uncomfortable, like Dharma thing that happens where you're like, Oh, you become aware of the way that you're making choices. Um, what I found is that the, the heart of what was really going on for me was not that I didn't want to make choices around that prioritize other people's whatever it was i didn't want to navigate the ways the, the parts in me that are cut off and um that i was unwilling to see mm. and and so that's what emerged it wasn't like oh wow i'm terrible about you know darker skinned black people it was like it it, it wasn't the 
the actual thing. It was the, what does that say about me? I, I, can't, I can't quite look at that, right? And so I'm not going to probe that. I'm not going to get into that because right next to that exists something else and how I relate to homeless people and right next to that exists something else and how I relate to like whether people really do believe you know, should be incarcerated. And, and, and right next to that is how I feel about, you know, uh, more, you know, walking into a song and that like there's all these white men and now I'm like furious at them, right? Who've, who've never done anything to me explicitly, but all of these things live together and we don't want to look at them. Yeah. And so the other, for me, what the other does, what I, my, my recognition as a teacher as a practitioner, is that the observation and the willingness to, to or the, the observation and recognition of the other surfaces what's actually inside of us. The, the ways in which we other mm. is an indication of not just how we feel about them, it's how we feel about ourselves. Right, right. Which, which in, you know, in my mind, that's what connects that sort of personal and collective that you're talking about, that's the right. liberation of the two. That's right. And that's harder for us to see because we've so organized our dialogue around what, what do we do for the other in, rather than what do we do for ourselves? What is the trauma that we have experienced as a collective? And I want to offer this out to white folks as a result of this construct that disappears our heritage, that disappears where we, where we come from, it inculcates us into a culture in which control of other is the norm. Right? That's a big question. I think that's the question that we have to investigate. What are the other things that are true for us that we're not willing to, 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 to recognize? And what does the cutting off of right and the the lack of feel the feeling of suffering of other of so-called others mean about what's going on in us for as in terms of like what are what are we cutting off of our own suffering not about the other the others what in us are we actually cutting off what part of angel do i not love what part of angel do I wish was different than it is? What part of angel do I wish that I do? I feel like I can't actually show that part to my family because they're not going to accept me. That exploration for myself in myself is actually what gave me a greater window to the so-called other, including, including, and most especially, I want to say my white dharma sisters and brothers and counterparts in, in community so that I can say our when I say talk about Dharma and talk about community wholeheartedly now. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice.
You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.